In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. I don't know how Dave Silvernail does it. How does he time it so he's out of town when it comes to preach on a passage like this? <laughs> circumcision three times in the first verse. Circumcision, an awkward and sometimes controversial subject and a little tricky for G-rated explanations. As I thought about babies and circumcision, <clears throat> I, can, I could just see the baby from the Super Bowl E-Trade commercials. You know, the one who is talking to his suspicious girlfriend who worries that he's been out with the other woman, that milkaholic Lindsay. Just as our smooth-talking, e-trading baby has girlfriend convinced that he's alone and busy making a killing on e-trade, Lindsay pops into the picture next to him with her classic line, Milka, what? I can imagine reading this verse from Colossians to that e-trade baby, and in my mind I can hear his response, Circum, what? Please bow with me and join me in prayer. Lord, may your spirit circumcise our hearts as we look to a difficult but triumphant passage in your inspired word. By the power of your word, may we be built up and may Christ be glorified. Amen. So what is this circumcision thing about? all about anyway? It has been in the news recently. Just three weeks ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a statement stating that current evidence indicates that the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks and that the procedure's health benefits justify access to this procedure for families who choose it. That was a flip-flop, by the way. But what does the Bible say about this procedure, which has been around for millennia, often seems to swirl in controversy, and clearly figures so prominently in the scriptures. Fundamentally, circumcision was an initiating rite of the Old Covenant, symbolizing the cutting away of sin, undergoing a change of heart, and inclusion in the covenant household of faith. We first see circumcision in Genesis 17, at the time when God promises Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So according to Genesis, circumcision is a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham the father of God's people in the Old Testament, and the spiritual father of Christians today. 
It was a physical reminder of the promises God made to his chosen people. Furthermore, it was commanded to be performed on every eight-day-old male child descended from Abraham throughout the generations. Therefore, this sign represents in the flesh God's everlasting covenant, covenant with his people. On the other hand, we see in the Genesis passage that any uncircumcised male shall, in an ironic play of words, be cut off from his people. This is a key element of circumcision. If you were circumcised, you were in. If you were not, you were out, cut off from God's people. So circumcision was very much an identity thing to the Jews. It was a sign of inclusion in the nation of Israel. But as we read the Old Testament, we see that circumcision was much more than merely a mark of identity. God's intent was always that it would reflect a changed state of the heart. In Deuteronomy 10, God sets his heart on his chosen people. Moses tells Israel to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcision was intended to be a matter of the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses predicts future failures, rebellion, and captivity for God's people, <clears throat> but also brings them a message of hope. Not hope in themselves, not hope in their own ability to circumcise their hearts, but hope in their gracious Lord. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you might live. Thankfully, circumcision of the heart is something God brings about. Ezekiel recognizes that circumcision is both a matter of identity and of the heart, commanding that foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh be excluded from the temple. Jeremiah warns God's chosen people in Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire. God takes circumcision of the heart seriously. Lest there be any doubt about the real nature of circumcision, Paul puts it to rest in Romans 2.29 when he says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision has always been about a heart relationship with God. <clears throat> so, we, so when we said that circumcision was an initiating rite of the old covenant, symbolizing cutting away of sin, undergoing a change of heart, and inclusion in the covenant household of faith, the real weight is on the inward nature of circumcision. The spiritual significance, the heart of flesh, that God alone gives us by his grace through faith. Well, I guess that wasn't so bad after all. Circumcision in the Bible's view was merely a sign of inclusion in God's covenant family and hopefully a reflection of a real heart change on the part of the recipient. Glad we got through that. <clears throat> so let's reread verse 11 and go on to the next verse. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Wait a minute. That wily old Pastor Silvernail has slipped me yet another landmine in verse 12. Verse 12, following on the heels of the circumcision verse, is one of the classic reasons most Reformed believers hold to infant baptism. Not again, another controversy, infant baptism. Why would we baptize a baby? What is this infant baptism thing all about? Well, let's start out with some baptism basics. Why do we baptize? We baptize because Jesus told us to. In Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is baptism? Baptism, in its form, is a ceremonial washing that signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins. In effect, it is a sign symbolizing washing away the sins that stain us. As Ananias told Paul, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This metaphor of washing is common in scripture. In Ephesians 5, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ washes away our sins. We are a sin-stained people, dyed in the wool sinners, but Christ's washing is both powerful and wonderful. No sin can withstand it. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists some deadly sins. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revolvers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But then, addressing the Corinthian believers he loves, Paul continues with the almost shocking statement, and such were some of you. But, and with God there's always a but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The washing of baptism signifies this amazing gospel cleansing. Baptism is also a sign of entry into the family of God. We see this association of baptism and God's people in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul proclaims, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Then in Romans 6, 3 and 4, we also see that baptism, baptism signifies union with Christ in his death, 
burial, and resurrection. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so if baptism is a sign of our union with Christ, why do we Presbyterians baptize infants who are too young to profess faith? Without being dogmatic, I'd like to lay out why we baptize infants in the PCA. As one who was baptized as an infant by Presbyterian parents, and then baptized again as an adult after coming to faith and joining a Baptist church, I've seen both sides of the infant baptism issue up close and personal. <clears throat> I'm now convinced from the scriptures that infant baptism is called for. So from a noteworthy but now scripturally convinced flip-flopper, what, what is the biblical reason for infant baptism? A good starting point is, in the, is the close connection between circumcision and baptism in verses 11 and 12, where the terms are used essentially interchangeably. In verse 11, Paul refers to the Colossians having been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, which he calls circumcision of Christ, and in the same context as having been buried with him in baptism. These statements reinforce the understanding that God's covenantal promises to Abraham are an everlasting covenant, as, Genesis, as the Genesis 17 passage states. Just as circumcision was a required sign for members of covenantal families of Israel, so baptism is required for those who are part of families that are spiritual Israel today, that is, Christian families. So a significant part of the argument for infant baptism rests in the Reformed recognition of God's faithfulness in the covenants he has made. God keeps his promises. God does not change as history unfolds. So physical circumcision required under the Old Covenant still has its analog of baptism instituted under the New Covenant by Christ. Though the requirement for physical circumcision passed away with the Old Covenant, both circumcision and baptism serve as a sign and seal of God's everlasting covenant made with Abraham and his family, those God chose to be his people. In Acts 2, 38 and 9, we see again God's emphasis on how he works in families. Peter concludes his sermon at Pentecost with the words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for believers and their children. This emphasis on God's working in families is a great reassurance and comfort to us as parents who care deeply about the, special, about the spiritual welfare of our children. Paul gives another indicator of the special status that children of believers enjoy. It's in a it is similar to the status of inclusion through the sign of and seal of circumcision that children born under the old covenant had. We find this in the discussion of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul says, 
for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. There's a great note in the Reformation Study Bible about this passage. It says, this is a striking affirmation of the special character of the home in which at least one parent is a believer. In Old Testament language, the whole family is regarded as being in covenant with God. Even the spouse who refuses to believe comes under the influence of God's work, much more so the children who are not old enough to profess their faith. Accordingly, Reformed theology has viewed this verse as providing part of the rationale for the baptism of children. Finally, although the scriptures neither explicitly affirm nor deny the validity of infant baptism, there are several cases in the New Testament where it is stated that whole house households were baptized. These include Lydia and her household, all the household of the Philippian jailer, and the household of Stephanus. It seems highly unlikely that none of these ancient households were without some young children. So that's the short view of the reason for infant baptism. Elders and deacons in the PCA take this view. But members of PCA churches may agree or disagree on this point of doctrine. Let me suggest that whenever you come across a disputable issue, you follow the example of the Berean church. Go to the scriptures to see if what is said is true. Test everything by the truth of the Bible. It seems to me that controversies in interpretation of the Bible are a very effective way that God motivates us to read, study, and meditate on his word. As we seek to be convinced about disputable matters in the Bible, may we always focus on the essentials, the fundamental teachings of Scripture, rather than get sidetracked in controversy. So Paul's comment about baptism in 1 Corinthians 1.17 is apropos here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. As we debate the teachings of Scripture, may we never lose sight of Christ and his gospel. That said, let's step back from the awkwardness of circumcision and controversy about baptism and notice a much more important point that emerges from this passage. This is the idea, no, not the idea, the reality that we are united with Christ. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian, you are united with Christ. <clears throat> the New Testament repeats this often with the expression, in him. As Christians, we are inextricably linked with, associated with, filled with, joined with, in relationship with, identified with, in fellowship with, and yes, united with the very Son of God. We saw this expression in him three times in last week's passage. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as, as uh, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and you have been filled in him. These are examples of the, uh, the implications of our union with Christ. In our everyday lives, we are to be directed by him. 
as we walk through this life, our every step is with and should reflect Christ. We walk in him, he directs our life. And though we come to him deficient in so many ways, he does not leave us stuck on stupid. We are rooted in Christ like a weeping willow tree planted by a stream. It flourishes because its roots have a constant supply of water. Similarly, similarly, we are built up in him. The image is of a building that is in the process of being built, added onto day after day. Think of the Freedom Tower in New York City. Have you seen the time-lapse construction video? Uh, it's impressive. As you watch, structure rises out of nothing, floor upon floor upon floor, until at last it overtakes and towers above the rest of the city. Our life in Christ is not static. We are constantly being built up in him because of our union with him. And finally, last week we saw that we are filled in him. Whatever is lacking in us, Christ can and will complete. Though we are a work in progress, we never lack in the essence of life because we are in him. Our passage today also drips with this idea, this reality that we are united with Christ. We have seen that in him we were circumcised. That is, we bear the sign and seal of God identifying us as God's beloved covenant people. And again, we are buried with him in baptism and raised with him whom God raised from the dead. Because of our union with Christ, our old life is dead. We are dead to sin and we have been raised to live a new life in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we have direction and purpose, are changed for the better, have all we truly need, are intimately marked as God's beloved, and are made alive from lifeless. So mindful of being in him, let's go on to verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The first thing that strikes me about verses 13 and 14 is the state we were in before we came to Christ. We were dead. We were not okay. We were not basically good, but in need of self-help. We were not merely, merely ailing. We were not weak. We were not a mix of sinner and good person. We were not a damaged, the damaged product of a bad environment. We were dead. We were lifeless, helpless, hopeless. Dead, dead, dead. Why were we dead? Trespasses and uncircumcision. We've talked about uncircumcision. Remember what Jeremiah said? The uncircumcised were under the fiery wrath of God, spiritually dead. It was a done deal. And we were dead in our trespasses. Trespasses are sins. We were dead in our sins. The particular Greek word that Paul chooses here is paratomata. Paratomata 
is derived from a classical Greek verb often used of intentional falling as of throwing oneself upon an enemy. And this is the prevailing sense in the biblical Greek, indicating reckless and willful sin. So not only were we dead and excluded from God's family, but we deserved it. We were not incidental sinners. We were paratamata sinners, reckless, willful sinners under God's fiery wrath and rightfully condemned. But wait, this sentence and state of death has been overcome. Our omnipotent, all-powerful God made us alive. Not because of anything in us, the willful, reckless sinners, but he made us alive together with Christ. Because Christ was willing to be united with us at great personal cost, God actually made us alive with him. God has forgiven our willful, reckless sins because we are in Christ. There is a potential problem, though. The God of the Bible is not only loving, but also righteous. He is perfectly just and fair. That is his nature. Just as Hebrews tells us it is impossible for God to lie, so it is impossible for our righteous God to break his promise and neglect to punish sin with death. So how can a righteous God let my sins go and transfer me from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son? As verse 13 states, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14 goes on that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is not a trifling matter. The terminology is that of a courtroom. We stand as defendants, and the prosecution has a record to use against us. We are a slam-dunk conviction. We look up at an all-knowing, all-powerful, fair, and wholly righteous judge about to pronounce verdict. But he does not say guilty. He does not even say not guilty. Instead, with powerful, loving voice, we hear, innocent. Even as a slimy, guilty sinner, we know something is amiss here. In a what? Yes, I said innocent. How can this be? This is the gospel, the good news. As verse 14 concludes, God has taken this record of debt that stood against us and set it aside, nailing it to the cross. I like the actual Greek words here. It literally says, he lifted it up from the middle and nailed it to the cross. He did not take up our sins haphazardly or gingerly, but rather grabbed them right from the middle. He got them all and then nailed his only son with every single stinking, scummy, sickening, spiteful sin we've ever or will ever commit. As Paul said, he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. Then he took that fiery wrath that we deserved and poured it out on that beloved, innocent son. Can you imagine doing that to your firstborn child? the incomparable grace of God that he loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, 
he did that to his son. I cannot fathom how much he loves us now that we are his, circumcised by the circumcision of Christ and buried with him in baptism. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no heart has heard, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I'm now going to speak to each one here today. As Peter and John said to the lame man in the temple who God was about to heal, I'll say to you, look at me. Have you put your faith in Jesus to pick up your sins from the middle and nail them to his cross? If you were struck by lightning right now and today found yourself before the judge of heaven and earth, what would you tell him about your sins? I know many here know their only hope is trust in Christ to take away their trespasses and give them his righteousness. That is the gospel offer. But if that's not where your head is at, I hope that you, that to you, this is an interesting question. If lightning struck, what would you tell a holy God about your sins? I think that it is interesting that we as humans often suppress and procrastinate when it comes to the existential questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Is God real? What is the purpose of my life? What do I do with my sin? What will happen to me when I die? These are hard questions. These are important questions. They take time to answer. You have plenty of time, right? That woke you up. <laughs> Thanks, Elisha. <clears throat> Lightning can strike when we least expect it. While all the pharaohs were in Maine eating and drinking and giving in marriage, Aaron to Matthew, lightning struck and blew this hole in our power panel at home in Virginia. It started a fire in our basement that by God's grace went out. While we were getting fat, dumb, and happy one moment, the next moment our lives might have been changed forever. Lightning strikes. If the gospel is beginning to make sense to you, don't wait around. The pastors or elders here today would love to answer any questions you have about belief in Christ. Don't wait. Lightning strikes. Don't wait to put your faith in Christ. With the love of Christ and the lingo of Nike, put your faith in him. Just do it. Okay, we've done show and tell. Issued an altar call. I'm serious, just do it. And now reach the last verse of our passage. Hallelujah. Months ago, Dave Silvernail gave today's sermon the title, A Supreme Triumph. The title is based on verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Who are the rulers and authorities that Paul is talking about here? The Pharisees and temple rulers? The sometimes cruel Romans who held Paul in prison as he penned these words? The diabolically evil Emperor Nero, who most likely was the one who eventually executed Paul, as well as countless other Christians? Perhaps. Or perhaps these rulers and authorities represent prevailing deceptive worldviews that are foisted upon us by false religion, secularism, political correctness, winds of time, and the popular culture. Or perhaps Paul is speaking here about demonic rulers and authorities. He did that in Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul recognizes that we are in a spiritual battle. We are wrestling against powerful and evil cosmic spiritual forces. Peter also warns us, saying, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Whether physical, philosophical, or spiritual, we are in a battle. But the good news is that we are not alone. We are in Christ, and Christ has triumphed. When we think of triumph today, it's usually in the context of sports. The triumph of victory, fist pumps, ball spikes, and end zone dances. These are great moments. But in Paul's day, <clears throat> the triumph was more than just the momentary satisfaction of a grand slam, homer, hat trick, or end zone catch. The triumph Paul has in mind was a momentous celebration of victory in war. It meant safety, security, and well-being for the victors, and the utter devastation, humiliation, and misery for the conquered. In Kent Hughes' commentary on Colossians 2, he summarizes Plutarch's description of the three-day triumph given to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia in 168 BC. Great scaffolds were erected in the Forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating. And all Rome turned out, dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. As Plutarch tells it, all newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposely with the greatest of art so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps care carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves. Cretan targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst horses' bits. And through these, there appeared the points of naked swords intermixed with long Macedonian sarissas. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would not be held without dread. Following the wagons came 3,000 
carrying the enemy's silver in 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold. Then the captured king's chariot, crown, and armor. Then came the king's servants, weeping with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children. Then King Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. This triumph of a Roman general was glorious, but can't compare with the cosmic triumph of Christ our God and King. If we really thought about it, why would we trust in our own abilities to keep us safe? Why would we ever be anxious? Why would we submit to the temptations of Satan and end up devastated like the Macedonians? Why would we? <clears throat> but I do, and we do, and all too often. <clears throat> we lose sight of two things. One, we are united with Christ. Two, Christ is supremely triumphant. That combination cannot fail. We are in Christ and he is triumphant over all. Our only problem is that we have spiritual ADD. We forget who we are in Christ and who Christ is. The antidote for spiritual ADD is simple. Resync your mind constantly with the Bible. Read the scriptures daily. Meditate on God's word constantly. Blessed is the one who meditates on it day and night. Teach it to your children when you rise and when you go through your day, as you go to bed. This helps us remember that as Christians, we are in Christ and he is triumphant. So let me uh, encourage you with a closing barrage of scripture. Here are nine scriptural implications of being in him, the supremely triumphant one. You'll find this list in your bulletin. And uh, could we project it up there also? <clears throat> Please take it out and follow along with me. I urge you to pick one of the nine to focus on this week as an antidote to your spiritual ADD. Which one speaks to your heart today? One, in him we are loved. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Two, in him we are cleansed. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Three, in him we are safe. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Four, in him we are free. There is there 
there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Five, in him we are enriched. In every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. In him we have purpose. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven, we, in him we are directed. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In him we are fruitful. <clears throat> Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nine, in him we are bound for eternal glory. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As Paul said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Christ has triumphed. We are in him. Think about these things. Take a moment to pray about them, and then I'll close. Dear Jesus, our triumphant Lord, we thank you that you have loved and cleansed us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee so that we are eternally safe in you. May we ever remember that, you, that we are free in you. Enrich us and sustain us, that we might be worthy of your calling and walk in the same way in which you walked. Lord Jesus, may we abide in you and bear much fruit. We delight that by your grace 